1895, H.G. Wells published his newest novel, which was called The Time Machine. It was about a man who invented a machine, as you can imagine, that allowed him to travel back in time. Now, he was hardly the first person to write about time travel, but his book kind of captured the world's imagination and launched many, many more stories after it. And part of the reason that these stories have always been around and will continue to be is because we've always longed and do long for the ability to escape um, the cruel bounds of time. Because none of us really ever have enough time. You yourself might not have wished for a time machine, but you may have wished that your relationship with time could change. Maybe there's moments you wish that time could have slowed down so you could just enjoy this present moment a little bit longer. Or maybe you wish you could speed up time and get through a particular line at the DMV a lot faster than it's currently moving. Or you wish you could go back in time and have one last conversation with that loved one who's not here anymore. Or go back and make a different decision than the one that you've always regretted and wished you could change. But we don't have any time machine. I really doubt we'll ever make one because part of what it means to be human is to be trapped in the present right now. And so rather than just sitting around wishing for time machines, I think we need to understand, well, how can we make the most of the time that we have? However much time may be left. Or at the very least, we need to see what does the Bible have to teach us? Because all of us, we know we are made from dust, and to dust we will return one day. There's a limited amount of time we have between being dust, and so we need to understand how can we make the most of it in a way that honors God. And so this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is all about teaching us how to have the correct relationship and perspective on time. So if you have your Bible and you haven't turned there already, go ahead and flip to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 um, and stand with me as we read um, this whole chapter of God's Word and see what it has to teach us. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain is the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. And also he's put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. For I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw that under the sun in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. 
I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. For who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for what is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will be after him? The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would bring your Holy Spirit and illuminate your word, that you would reveal what this old passage has to teach us. Not just about our lives today or about our future or our past, but also what it has to show us about Jesus and the gospel. Help us to see the, the hope and the beauty that is here and how we can apply it to our lives. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, our, our first point here about time is that our time is limited and it is out of our control. Our time is limited and it's out of our control. This is one of the great frustrations of humanity, right? We've mastered the oceans, we've explored the world, we're conquering the stars, we've gone from log houses and thatched rooms to skyscrapers, but we can't control time. It eludes our grasp. Only in our stories can we imagine those who have the ability to, to travel through or at least to control how they experience time, but we can't. We only have this moment in front of us. This chapter in Ecclesiastes 3 begins with a poem, and it's arguably one of the best-known poems in the Bible. Um, most of you have probably heard it, or at least you've heard snippets of it, even if you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes. You've heard some of these phrases. It's such a beautiful one that even those who aren't Christians are often captivated by it. It's so profound that it will even be read at secular funerals that don't really want much to do with God because it captures something beautiful about life. It reminded me, some of you have heard this if you were watching the sermon previews, but it reminded me of an experience I had um, with a piece of art. I was taking a class at Dallas Theological Seminary called A Christian View of Art, and so then I found myself on our field trip um, at the Dallas Museum of Art looking at a Jackson Pollock painting called The Cathedral. And I was really just captivated by it. I'm not big into art, but I, there I stood and I couldn't help it. And if you don't know anything about Jackson Pollock, which I didn't, um, he was an abstract drip painter, which means he took his canvas and he just laid it on the ground and got a bunch of paint on his brush, dipped it in there, and then just walked around the canvas, letting the paint just fall on it. So I used to kind of, so that's kind of what the painting looks like. It's just a bunch of drips on this piece of canvas. And I used to mock that kind of art, you know, call it childish or silly. Yeah, what is this modern art nonsense? You know, my kids could make that if they wanted to. But as I stood in front of it, I, I found myself just kind of transfixed by its beauty. I thought, wow, there, this really is something beautiful and transcendent about it. But I also found as I was looking at it, all right, I, I need someone to explain this to me. I like it. It's cool. It's beautiful. But also, what's going on here? Or why? What does this mean? Why did he do this? And this poem is somewhat like that, where we read it and go, wow, this is really beautiful. I like it. But uh, okay, somebody's got to explain this to me. What does this mean? A lot of different times, but so What? We might be drawn to the beauty, but we need to understand what God is trying to communicate. So let's take a closer look and see in verse 1. He tells us, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. 
season and time. Time, that word is repeated over and over throughout these verses. It's almost impossible to miss. It's said over 28 times in those eight verses. There's 14 pairs where it's a time for this and a time for that, usually opposites. In the poem, it's meant to cover kind of the full spectrum of life. That's why it begins with a time to be born and a time to die. Life and death and war and peace, laughter and weeping, mourning and dancing, embracing and fellowship and loneliness, seeking and losing, keeping, throwing away, silence and speaking, love and hate. In these verses, we see kind of the beauty of ordinary life and experience, but we also see the pain, don't we? We get glimpses of the suffering of loneliness, of death, of losing, and tears. All those times in life when, man, life is just hard. What does all this mean? So some think that, well, these verses are just here to show us kind of the wonder and the beauty of life, right? We just look at it and think, wow, isn't God awesome? Look at, you know, what life is. And, and it's, you know, as if it's just about the honesty and the poetry should move us to worship, I think that's true. I mean, hopefully all of God's word does that, moves us to worship him. But I think that something deeper is going on here. Again, if you look at verse 1, he says, For everything there's a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. So everything has its time. And it just happens for a moment. Or a few moments, some longer moments than others, and then it, it passes. And then it's a time for something else. Now it's a new season. And I think this section here is to remind us that the time and life are really totally out of our control. Okay, none of us had any say in when our births were. Okay, you didn't get to choose the day you were born. No, you didn't get to choose the generation or the year you were born into. Maybe you wish you would be born, you know, years later, or maybe you wish you would be born off into the future, or you would wish you were born many generations ago. But none of you gets got a vote. We're just, we're here. And we also don't get a vote when death comes or any other part of life. It is out of our hands and out of our control. If we had control, we would always choose life and joy and laughter, right? And then embracing and not loneliness, but we don't. These times and these seasons, they come whether we like it or not. The seasons we love can often be too short and the seasons we don't like can be too long. I don't want to get bogged down in looking at, at every single one of these 14 pairs in these eight verses because the poem really isn't about the specifics of, of dying and of, of gathering stones and throwing them away. But what it is all about is that our time is limited and it's out of our control. You can't pick and choose which seasons you get to enter in. They come and they go. Just like the wind. And this, lim this limitation, it frustrates us. It leads to our conundrum And point number two is that we long for more time and... Control. We wish we had more time and we wish we had more control over our lives. Our natural response to our circumstances is to wish for more. Wish we could add more years to our life. We, we don't want time to run out and old age comes faster than you thought that it would at one point. Discover with children, time goes a lot faster. People always said it and I always wonder, wow, why do, you, why do people say that every single time you see children? And I have my own children and now I understand. Time goes fast. There's no slowing down. There's no going back. And that frustrates us. We wish we could do it. Verse 9, right after all of that, it, his question isn't, wow, isn't this beautiful and wonderful? He gets in verse 9, he goes, what gain is the work from, worker from his toil? It's the central question of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. What do we gain from all of our beautiful and all of our terrible time? Not much. We die. That's, that's what happens. 
Verse 10 and 11, I've seen the business God has given the children of men to be busy with. He makes everything beautiful in its time. So this desire inside of ourselves, really, it's kind of natural. God created the seasons and the times to work this way. That we spend our, our moments, our lives are just a series of individual moments that, that go and pass. And in those, there is profound God-created beauty to be found. But there's more than that in the rest of 11. He says, also, he has put the eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So God has stamped our hearts and our innermost beings with a longing and with a desire for eternity. With a longing that these few moments wouldn't be all that there is. That these moments would go on and on. Humanity wasn't designed and created with an end date in mind. Sin and death, God didn't make those. They're the enemy. When the serpent entered the garden, death came with him. But now we, we long for eternity and Eden. We long to go back to the way life was before Adam and Eve fell and sinned in the same way that we would have if we were them. And we long for a return to life as we, we should be, but from our perspective, we can't find it. And the rest of verse 11 tells us too, again, yet so that he cannot find what God has done from the beginning to the end. We don't get to see the whole plan that God has. It's one of the hard things about being a Christian is we say, well, God has a plan, but you know, none of us know what it is. And we say that knowing in, in hope. We hope he has one, but I don't get to see it. I just get to see this moment here and I don't like what I see. But we know that God sees far more. And we want to see it. We long to see it. God stamped in our hearts a desire to see it. But we ain't going to see it. And not on this side. We're, we're often like sailors on a ship bound for the new world that we've only heard of in dreams or in stories. Eternity's in our hearts, but it's not in our experience. We only experience the finite. Then in verses 12 and 13, he says something similar to last week. I warned you last week, you were going to see it again. You see it again here, we're going to see it again five more times. Because it's going to be repeated throughout the book. It says, I perceived that there is nothing better than to be joyful. And to do good as, as long as they live. Also so that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Every time he says it, I think he has a slightly different point that he's making. He's not just repeating himself. Here, I think the, his focus is that... The finiteness of time is actually a gift. And it's a beauty that God made us this way. It's good that we only experience one moment at a time in a sequence or the present, that we don't move back and forth and all around. We're not made to transcend the limitations of time. It's not as if we will evolve or meditate enough and get to escape it. No, no, no. God, God made us here to experience life this way. God gave... Adam and Eve, all of creation, and he only had one limitation, and it was, hey, that tree over there, don't eat from that one. But you can do whatever else you want. They couldn't resist. They ate, they rebelled, and now people die. They had all the gifts in the world, and God's very presence as he walked with them, and they still wanted more. We do something similar. We're not, not, we might not be in Eden, but we still want more from God. We don't appreciate the moments and the life that God has given us and we long for more of it or more control. We don't just appreciate it and enjoy it as a gift that God has given us. And again, I'm not trying to just give you some kind of generically spiritual, well, just appreciate 
each moment. That's not distinctly Christian. Although it's not a bad thing. But I think what this passage is trying to do this is trying to call us to, to stop fighting time and stop trying to control it. Let go and let God be in control. You know, I, I see this with my children too, right? They're still really young. But one thing that happens with young kids is they grow quick. Notice when they're first born, it's like every four weeks they make some significant leap where they start doing something they weren't doing before. And then, wow, by the time you get used to it, they've made another one. And then it's not going bad. And then, wow, Calvin used to cuddle with me. He doesn't want to cuddle anymore. He doesn't even like I pick him up. When did that happen? That happened really fast. And sometimes I wish I could just slow it down and pause or, or stretch it out and make it last really, really long. At each, but there's something beautiful there. But there's also each moment of pain and suffering in life is it a countdown for us. Because there's a time when pain will be no more. There's no crying in heaven or in the new world when God returns. There are no tears, no death, and no sorrow. There's no cemeteries in the new kingdom because all the dead will have been resurrected. So every moment of pain that we experience here too is a is a gift of longing because one day it will be the last time that you ever feel that. Verse 14, he says, And I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken away. God has done it so that people fear him. That which is has already been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what is driven away. I think these verses mean God's the one who's in control of time. Whatever he does lasts far into eternity, future, and eternity past. He is the Alpha and the Omega who was, who is, and who is to come. We can't take the strings of time out of his hands and get control ourselves. We're not the Alpha and the Omega. We're just dust. And this should lead us to fear God. Not that we should be afraid or shaking in terror, but we should be in awe of his power and his might. It should lead us to worship Him. Instead of trying to be in control of time ourselves and long for it, we should just worship the God who is in control. I'm somewhat of an organized person, right? Every now and then I get really ambitious. I'll get out a calendar or a planner and start making plots. really like to plot out my preaching and, and teaching. I've got the rest of December plotted out pretty well, planned each Sunday. I'm already itching to get 2023 planned out because there's just something in me that longs to do it. Just get it organized and done. I like to plan out my week. Sometimes even I'll plan out my days or my whole week in little 30-minute increments. Okay, when I'm in the office, I'm going to spend these 30 minutes here. Then the next 30 minutes, I'm going to spend it here. And then I've got it, all, got it all done. Part of the reason I love to do this is it gives me the illusion of control. Because when I do it, you know, when I've, I've planned it. So I've planned it this way. So now this is what my week and this is what 2023 will look like because I have planned it. It is written down. But you're laughing because you know, too, that the problem is my plans often get frustrated. It doesn't usually go that way. This week, I wanted to have my sermon written by Thursday. I, that was in my plan. Didn't really happen. My great 30-minute schedule often gets thrown off by toddlers or sickness or many other things because the world does not run according to my calendar and planner and schedule. I wish that it did. We'd all be much more efficient if I got to be in control. And, or at least I would, I would like it. Now, you might not have a planner. Maybe you're not quite that organized. But all of us do long for that control, don't we? We wish that random distractions or things would come, wouldn't pop up. And when they do, it frustrates us. 
But instead of just sitting in frustration that things are out of our control, we should just accept the gift of time that God has given us, whatever is in front of us, and we should admit to the, submit to the king of time instead of trying to become sovereign ourselves. So our time's limited. We always want more. We need to just accept the time that God gives us. But we can't just sit back, kick up our feet, do whatever you want. Again, that's not a distinctly Christian idea. Because our time is actually even more significant than we realize. It's certainly more eternally significant than most people realize. Our point number three is that our limited time is eternally significant. Our limited time is eternally significant. Yes, our time's limited. Yes, you can't control it. Yes, you should enjoy the limited time that you have, but it does not mean do whatever you want. Does it just mean carpe diem, YOLO, just, you know, you do you. So the reality is our time is eternally significant. What you do today, even right now in these few moments of gathered worship, will have consequences. Will not just have consequences for the rest of your life here, it will have consequences into eternity and throughout the rest of time, as long as it goes forever and ever. And despite this fact, our world's filled with evil. Verse 16 Moreover, I saw that under the sun, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. There's nothing new under the sun. I don't think the wickedness of today is any greater than the wickedness of the past. Everywhere Solomon looks, he sees wickedness. And he's looking at places where there shouldn't be wickedness, but it's there anyway. Which also should tell you there's probably wickedness in all the other places too. It doesn't just so happen to be found there. Places where there should be justice, like the courts, the throne room, and governments. and those places of justice, there's wickedness. And the places where there should be righteousness... There's even more wickedness. Places of righteousness like the temple or places of worship. Seminaries, the gatherings of righteous people are instead filled with the gathering of the wicked. Even though our time is eternally significant, most of humanity spends it doing wickedness and sinfulness and rebellion against God. But as you look, instead of what, what does he do? Instead of just despairing and whining about the good old days, he, he goes to 17 and he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and every work. He does not put his hope in the present. He, not in his current experience of reality, but in the reality that is to come. He finds comfort in the coming judgment of God. Because God will judge both the righteous and the wicked. Everything that all of us do is seen by God. It does not escape his notice. It is not so hidden or invisible as some might think. And he is recognizing not just that God will judge, but he's also acknowledging that this time right now is before that judgment's going to come says there is a time for every matter and for every work. It is not the time for the judgment of the righteous yet. It is not yet time for God to judge the wicked, but that will come. That does unfortunately mean that today is a time for the wicked to thrive. It won't exist forever, but that is the time that it is now. It shouldn't be unusual or surprising. So widespread wickedness and sin and injustice, it shouldn't shock us, it shouldn't surprise us. It's the time for it. But it's just a season. 
and its time will be up one day. Verse 18, I said in my heart regarding the children of man that God is testing them so that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. God allows this to happen now as a test. And we're all taking the test. Everyone who's alive is taking the test at this very moment. This is why our time is so eternally significant that God is watching and testing and judging and evaluating our every word, our every action, our every day, our every moment, our every secret thought. You can't do whatever you want. Well, you can, but God's watching. It's going to be graded. Every decision you make, every interaction you have with strangers and with your family. And what makes these our moments so eternally significant is that one day God will grade our lives. Remember the end of the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 14 tells us at the very end of the book, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And there's no do-overs after judgment. And my, my children are trying to teach them discipline, so there's consequences, like when they throw food. Okay, well, you're done eating. I'm taking your food away now. And they often yell, no, try again, try again, try again. And sometimes they get to try again, and sometimes they don't. But when you stand before God and judgment comes, you don't get to yell, try again, try again. It's too late. Time's up. That's why our moments matter. As long as you're still alive, there's a chance. When you die, it's up, and the next couple of verses are brutal, as this whole book is brutal and honest, because it reminds us that all of us are going to die. Verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is Vanity. We are all going to die just like beasts and animals. Like dogs, and cats, even flies. We all die. Being a human being might be better than being a beetle. Um, but the reality is, you're going to die too. Just like that beetle. And you don't have any more control over that day than that bug does. Verse 20, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust return. All of us will return to the dust, whether we get buried in the ground in a beautiful box or cremated and turned to ash or thrown in the backyard. All of us will become dust again, just like the animals and beasts of the world. We all die. God's hope is that during this time of testing, we recognize that we are dust, that we see our limitations. And instead of turning to the gifts and worshiping them or to ourselves, it will turn to God for help. Because after we die, we're going to face judgment. And the wicked then will be punished for all of their sins. The, sin, the things that we see and the things that they've done in secret places. And one of the many reasons the judgment of God is not something to be feared or scared of or embarrassed by as believers, because this is our hope. That murderers... Rapists, abusers will all find true justice at the seat of God. Those who thought they got away with their sin will find out that God was watching and he did not forget. And justice is coming. But it's also hope because the righteous will be rewarded. Verse 20 really, you know, it doesn't seem very exciting. Okay, none of us really enjoy being reminded that we're from dust. 
and to dust we will return. None of us want to remember that we're going to die. We prefer to forget that and put those thoughts far from our memory. But there is a peculiar blessing in being dust. And it's a blessing because the dust of our lives will last. It will not just fade into the wind and be forgotten. But your limited time here as dust will have eternal significance forever. You might be made from dust, but the actions that you take will reverberate throughout eternity. So even your most boring, ordinary moments of your day matter eternally and significantly. Your decision to get out of bed this morning and come and worship Jesus is noticed by God. It's eternally significant. Your decision to give that poor person even some money even though you weren't sure if they would waste it is eternally significant. And God sees it. We might be dust. We might disappear as our bodies decay and fade to the earth. But we can be dust that matters for all eternity. When Jesus returns. But the only way that's going to happen is if we pass that test and that judgment seat of God. Because after we die, that's it, right? Our test is over. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Our every action is held up against the rubric. Right? Or the teacher key to see how we did if we gave the right answer. And it's really just a pass-fail test. And you've got to get every single answer right if you want eternal life. Can't just do more good than bad. Can't just be 51% righteous. You've got to be 100. Problem is, none of us are going to pass that test. None of us can. I'm sure you've all had at least one moment this morning that would lead to your failure. So we need help. Before we go to this judgment seat, we need an advocate. We need someone who's going to beg for mercy for us. We need someone who's going to give us extra credits that we can pass. But how? How can we pass this test? Not just that. How can we, our dust matter forever? Well, it's only found in one person. And it's only found in the gospel. Point number four is that Jesus redeems our time. Jesus redeems our time. Jesus is the only one who can help us. The gospel is our only hope to have our finite moments on this earth matter into eternity. He's the only hope we have for resurrection and eternal life that we can live again. He's the only way that we can escape the just punishment of hell. Jesus is our only hope. Both of these last two verses, verses 21 and verse 22, they repeatedly ask who. Who can do this? Who can do this? The first one in verse 21. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up just really asking, who knows if our souls will exist after we die and the beasts just go down to the earth and theirs don't? It's kind of a pessimistic verse. Right? It's led some to argue, well, maybe the author doesn't really believe in eternal life. Maybe he doesn't really get it. But I don't think that's true. I think as he's doing is just acknowledging that none of us who are alive know for sure. We only have our hope. We don't have definitive, we don't got scientific proof. Our experience of time is too limited. We don't get to see what's after until we get there. But there is someone who knows where the spirit of man goes. There is someone who knows what happens after death because he's been there. And then he came back. And his name is Jesus. Because Jesus himself died, but before he died, he lived a perfect life. He passed that test with flying killers. Lived all of his moments 
doing exactly what he should have done. And God judged him as being perfect and righteous. And when he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, he died in order to make it possible for us to be saved so that we could pass that test, so we, we could be found righteous. Verse 22, I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, he's asking, well, does, can anyone take us into the life to come? Does anyone know what happens after death? Can anyone take us by the hand? Can they guide us into death and then bring us back into life? The answer is yes, Jesus. Only Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can rejoice. Because of Jesus, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to be afraid to talk about it. It doesn't have to bring us despair and depression. It can bring us hope and joy. Because we look forward to the resurrection and eternal life. We might be dust, but humanity is the most blessed dust on earth because Jesus died for dust. When he looked at us, he didn't just see dirt that he fashioned from the ground and breathed into it and made a mistake. He didn't see beasts. He doesn't just see atoms or just the result of chance. He doesn't just see creatures who randomly evolved for some ooze. He saw someone he loved. And Jesus is the one who can redeem our time. He's the one who can make every time that we spend, every moment on this earth, he can make it matter for all eternity. Because he redeems and he blesses our obedience. That every moment spent giving your life to Jesus and following Jesus as best as you can echoes into eternity. When every nation and empire crumbles into the dust and is lost into history, your decision to follow Jesus will be rewarded and still remembered. And those who give their lives to Jesus, right? Those who, who repent of all the time in their life that they've spent sinning, spent disobedient, they've spent far away or running from God, their time's redeemed too. There is no life in Christ that has been wasted. No sinner is too far gone. There's no sin, nothing that the blood of Jesus cannot undo. The forgiveness of Jesus, it is like a time machine. It goes back into your life and it undoes every sin in the eyes of God. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees someone who is righteous, not because of you, but because of the blood of Jesus. And the forgiveness that he brings. Even then, I think there's no such thing as a wasted life with Christ. Even if you spent your whole life in wickedness. You just spent your whole life doing whatever it is you wanted and on your deathbed with a few moments came to him and repented. Your life is not over. It has only just begun. Just like the thief on the cross. We had nothing but hours left. Nothing to offer Jesus except for suffering and pain and times he would spend in agony, probably cursing a lot because that's probably what any of us would do if we were being crucified. And he asked if Jesus would remember him, and Jesus said, yes. Today you'll see me in paradise. In heaven, in the kingdom of God, there's no beggars. There's no village idiots. There's no people who don't belong. No one is in on the outskirts of, oh, I don't really know how they got in here, but the rest of us are over here. All of us are in the family of God because of Jesus and his adoption and the forgiveness of sins. 
And he redeems our time, even the time we think we've wasted. If you don't know Jesus, repent. Come to faith. Put your hope in him, and he can redeem every moment that you've spent far from him. And your life will matter into eternity. And if you do know Jesus, even if you've called yourself a Christian, but you've lived your life doing whatever you wanted, it's not too late. Come to the arms of Jesus. Because you've got a lot of time left. I don't know how much time you have here on this earth, but you have eternity waiting for you. If you give your life to Jesus, it's going to be a wonderful eternity. If you don't, it will not be. All we have to do is ask for mercy. Because anyone who runs to Jesus and asks for mercy always finds it. Kind of in conclusion, you know, we don't really control our time, even though we wish we did and we, we never get enough. Our time is eternally significant, far more important than we know, but Jesus can redeem all of it. If we come to him, if we are born again, if we follow him in obedience. Being the, the peculiar blessing of dust is this. Jesus died for us because he loves us. And our bodies may fade into dust, but they will return anew in the resurrection. And glorified bodies that we don't fully know what it exactly will look like. Maybe we can argue about it later, but here's what we know they will not do. Those bodies won't turn to dust again. They will last forever with no pain, no aches, no suffering at all. Just living in a world of love with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth as sons and daughters of God. We close this in prayer. Invite our worship team to come up and lead us in song once more. Lord, thank you that when you made us from dust and then we rebelled against you and spit in your face that you didn't just destroy us and wipe us out and start over. Lord, that over and over and over you showed grace. The whole Bible is filled with stories of your patience and your long-suffering and your graciousness to dust-filled human beings who spit at you. Exemplified in you sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, to save us. So we would not die and disappear forever into the wind, but so that we could live forever with you because of your grace. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel, for the hope of the resurrection. We thank you that you have and you will defeat death when you return. We long and pray for that day, Jesus. Pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior in song once more. Hallelujah. Soon we will see him when he rides across the sky. Hear this benediction from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.